0: Listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio. So, hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of Changing Reality. Welcome, one, welcome, all. For all of you who are new to the show, Changing Reality is a show that features phenomenal people from all walks of life who are, in essence, changing their own reality. So we'll be hanging out through the show and interviewing, speaking to all kinds of people from social change makers, entrepreneurs, business owners, to even top executives, artists, musicians, and inspiring individuals from all across the world, and also bringing their stories here to the Penn campus. So by listening to these inspiring stories and journeying. As of how they started how they shaped their careers and the lessons they picked up along the way to change their reality hopefully we'll all be able to pick up a few nuggets of wisdom that will be helpful in our own uh, strides towards the things that we want to achieve in life as well and I'm someone who truly believes in the power of stories I wanted to do this show simply because i feel like there are a lot of people out there who do phenomenal things and make waves in the lives of those around them and I'm super passionate about learning these stories because I believe that by listening to the experiences of others, by figuring out what they did right, we can shorten our own learning curves. And that can really accelerate the work that we want to do. In fact, to show you how passionate I am with stories, uh, I actually personally founded and run a youth movement called Ascendance that started back at home in Malaysia, which is where I'm from, that collaborates today with not just our Malaysian Ministry of Education, but over 28 countries, in a sense, we work with over 35,000 students to help provide an alternative education platform for any student who wants to change their reality. So essentially, we work from students from elementary all the way up to college, through various sessions, programs, experiential learning activities, and projects that help them discover their passion Fashion, learn about themselves and the world around them, and start their own careers while they're still in school. That creates meaningful impact, not just for themselves, but for those around them as well. And as i said, we've been lucky to work with over 35,000 students, uh, 970 communities, and have incubated countless number of student-run projects and social enterprises run by students aged eight to twenty-five years old themselves. And the basis of all of this has been stories, has been kind individuals who've been willing to take their time, share their experiences, share their thoughts in a sense and similarly i hope this show is that platform for all of you listening in today so that through this show you can also get the right uh, at least direction to find the experiences to find the meaningful conversations that can shape your career so if you want more info about the show if there's any specific topics that you want to talk about let us know in the chat below in the comments and we'll try to pick up as many as we can as well So, today we have a very special guest with us today. We have the Chief Analytics and AI Officer as well as the Managing Director at True Digital, one of Thailand's biggest technology companies. So, True Digital Group is a multinational technology company headquartered in Bangkok, Thailand, which was born through the vision of True Corporation and created with the aim to become the ultimate digital transformation enabler, for everyone in Southeast Asia. Our speaker today is a member of also the Forbes Technology Council, an invitation-only community of world-class CIOs, CTOs, and technology executives who are to have been reviewed by the committee and has a very, very, uh, I would say, stringent acceptance process based on their track record of successfully impacting business growth So he's also the winner of the World World Cloudera's 2019 Industry Transformation Award. And prior to that, he even had amazing roles all across the globe. He worked at McKinsey. He was the Group Vice President of Data Analytics at Exeata. And with so many more other experiences, it is my pleasure to welcome our speaker today, Pedro, to our virtual stage. So let's bring him on.
1: Are you. Nice to to talk to you, Harsha. It's a pleasure. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. And (laughs) uh, yeah, looking forward to... To, to chatting with you. Oh, and thank to you. So much. A little bit about um, what I have been doing so far, which I'm sure is, uh, well, I mean, is, is what I have done. Probably other people have been more impressive, but well, I mean, I think I have a few interesting stories. Uh, i
0: would agree i think you have many interesting stories to share especially because you've done so many things in the telecommunications industry in the in the different industries that you've been that i'm so glad that you actually agreed to be on our show so thank you for joining us number one on our show today uh there's so many ways we can start this conversation, but I always like starting at the very beginning, in a sense, on your journey itself. So we've achieved so many things, as I said, Forbes Technology Council award-winning executive, uh, top uh, executive in some of the largest companies in Southeast Asia here. But your journey actually starts um, literally halfway across the world. I think you're from Spain. Um, you mentioned exciting. also, yeah, and and I think you studied engineering in the telecommunications industry when you first started out. Tell us where your journey really starts. Uh, was this always like the field that you wanted to get into? Were you always confident of where you were going or were you once a lost college student like many of us today
1: i think uh, I think my journey study started when I was studying at secondary school when I was a student and uh, when I was probably fifteen sixteen years old there were there were two things that impacted my life and and I think they have been quite uh, quite significant going forward right one of the one of the things around those years is i i went overseas i went out of my country uh, for the first time i remember in 1996 i went to the uk in 1997 i went to australia um, i did a studies change in a, in australia so that was something very significant because it opened my mind to other countries to other cultures and that has been a constant in my life i have lived in 10 countries, we can talk about it, but traveling, learning languages, getting to know people from other cultures has been very, very important in my whole life. So that was something that was really uh, at that point in time, that was something that started to change or started to shape my life. And then the other thing is also around the same time when I was 16, 15, around that time, I became really passionate about math. I became really passionate about numbers. Uh, I participated in a number of math and physics competitions back in my country, I got really uh, excited about the subject uh, because I had amazing teachers back in in secondary school and high school and uh, well that is something that I have further developed about how to use numbers. In, in business, right? And this is this has taken me to my current role where I am chief analytics and AI officer, right? Which is basically applying numbers with a little bit of sense. Um, so these are these were the two things. And and I think my my career and also my personal life has been determined by these two axes, no? Going to more countries, getting to know people from other places, and at the same time making things numeric, quantitative, um, making sense of the numbers in order to well, in order to follow or in order to achieve a goal, eh? in, in general, a business goal.
0: No, I think that's very interesting. It's very left brain, right brain on one side. It's left brain,
1: brain, right brain, yes, I would say. So it's exactly, so the, on the one side, you have the people, right? People yeah. from different places, languages, creativity, and all that, having fun with people, building relations. On the other hand, you have the logic. Right, And I think it's really important to have both of them in order to, well, I mean, in, 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 at, at work, in business, in so many facets of life, it's very important to, to be well-balanced in your left and right brain. Right.
0: But it, but it seems like something that comes very naturally to you, in a sense. I doubt 16-year-old you was planning, how do I develop my right brain, my left brain, in a sense. Well, I had because... no idea.
1: It just happened by chance. I mean, it's not that I, I was thinking about developing. No, I had, I had absolutely no idea.
0: But, um, but it's very interesting in a sense. And I know many people who who have a lot of talent in maybe maths or analytics or certain specific thing that they do, but maybe they're not as well developed in the, uh, what do you call it, the other components of the people skills and vice versa as well. So it's very interesting that you manage to balance both And I think that definitely, as you said, set the stage for the rest of your career, traveling to 10 different countries, being uh, a very prominent executive in the industry that that applies a lot of these fundamental concepts of math and in, in data and so forth. When you first started, in a sense, um, and this probably was, it's a bit different or at least a, a lot more scarier than your later career journey of traveling, but how did you feel going to different parts of the world, spending time there? Was there any awkwardness? Was, this a, was there a certain skill that you picked up in being able to adapt and, and talk to people at a young age?
1: It was just amazing. I enjoyed that. <laughs> I mean, I, I did that because I enjoyed that. Um, I went to Australia. I spent three months in Australia in ninety-seven. I think in 98, I went to the UK. I went went to Venezuela in South America in 98. I mean, Venezuela was a a very different country from what is now. Uh, I I started traveling. Uh, I went to Germany, traveled throughout Europe. Uh, So I have lived in so many countries, right? Uh, So places where I have lived more than, let's say, three months are, well, obviously Spain, uh, Germany, France, uh, Hong Kong, uh, Hong Kong and China, Hong Kong, China, because mm-hmm. uh, I was in Shenzhen as well. Uh, USA, Chile, uh, Malaysia. So you're Malaysian,
0: and yeah.
1: <laughs> right. So, but I always enjoy that. And obviously, there are, uh, there are, there are misunderstandings sometimes, there are cultural differences, but as you are getting more in touch with people from other places, you realize that the mistakes that you make don't matter that much. Uh, As you become more international, people develop an ability to understand the intentions behind what is said, because everybody's speaking a foreign language, right? So uh, it was was a lot of fun. And one of the things that I realized, I mean, I, I learned multiple languages over the years, one of the things that I realized is that as I'm getting older, learning new languages is more difficult than when I was young, much more difficult. But, uh, but well, I mean, I, I did that. I traveled to so many places. I have developed all my career overseas because I enjoy it, because I enjoy being in, in different places.
0: Oh, very well said. How did all of these experiences and, and finding your passion or your your love for math and all of that shape you in making the decision of where you wanted to pursue your next step or where you wanted to start your your, your tertiary education, going to university and all of that? Did it like uh, yeah, did it have an effect on what you want to do next? Were you a lot more clearer than you would have been without or tell us? So I that. studied
1: I studied telecom engineering. Uh, in my hometown, in Bilbao, and then I did an exchange in Germany. Well, I studied telecom engineering, that was 1998 when I got to university. And 1998, 1999, 2000, those were the years of the Um, Mm dot-com. And the dot-com was enabled by telecommunications, right? It was enabled by the internet. So I I studied telecommunications because I was very excited about the dot-com. I was very excited about all those digital internet companies that were starting to to appear. And and I wanted to learn how that worked. Probably at that time, I was not necessarily... I was more interested about understanding how it really works than about creating something of my own, right? Mm. Uh, That's that's why I I decided to to study telecommunications. Uh, It was very numeric, very quantitative, uh, sometimes too much, sometimes too much. (laughs) Uh, and and then, well, after that, uh, I started working as a programmer. Most people that uh, study engineering end up working as a programmer. That was fun for a while. But at some point when I was in my, in my mid-20s, I started realizing that I was limiting myself if I only if I just wanted to be an engineer, mm-hmm. if I was only able to understand things from a technical perspective, but I was not able to understand things from a business perspective. That business perspective, by the way, could be very quantitative as well, right? And, and, and that was the time when I started realizing that in order to go to the next level, I had to study an MBA. Mm. And well, I um, I applied for different business schools. And, and finally, I spent two years in Chicago Booth, uh, the University of Chicago Bush School of Business. And that was amazing. That was absolutely amazing. And, and I learned so much in that business school. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the business schools that is the business school that has most Nobel Prizes in the world. Uh, and I met some of them. Uh, uh, well, it, it, was, it was amazing um, for, for multiple reasons, right? One of the reasons is that Chicago is very rigorous with, uh, with subjects. So it's, it's a school that developed quantitative finance, developed a lot of theories in finance. Uh, when I was there, they were starting to develop the same theories in uh, in marketing, which at, the, at that time we called it the statistics. Now we call it data science, but it was it was basically that, right? It was it was understanding a little bit of statistics and being able to make marketing decisions uh, and sales decisions uh, based on data, which is what I do today. So I got in touch with that for the first time in in Chicago when I was learning statistics. The other thing that was really interesting about Chicago is that despite all the quantitative area that Chicago Booth has, people were a lot of fun to work with. People were very humble and people were very, I will say, um, it was was not competitive at all. Other business schools are probably very competitive. In the the US, some business schools are, are, uh, renowned for being competitive, Chicago Booth was very oriented to people. And that was something that I also enjoyed. And I feel very, very much attached to, to the school. And it, it helped me taking one step forward in my career, which is understanding business, getting to know people from all around the world. Because I mean, in Booth, we were people from, well, every every single country, or probably not every single country, because there are so many countries, but from many, 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 many countries. No countries it, was, yeah. it was an amazing it was an amazing experience, right? Um, so yes, uh, absolutely. And then after that, I joined uh, McKinsey, which is, uh, is like a second MBA. Uh, it's like a more, even more serious MBA. Um, and it was, and and, and that was, I, I feel also very thankful to, to the firm. Ex-McKinsey people call McKinsey the firm. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel very, very thankful to the firm. It was um, a place where I learned some... Well, I, I worked in the firm in McKinsey, worked in South America, because obviously I, I speak Spanish and in South America, well, I have an advantage because I speak the language and I'm very close culturally to them. So it was it was fun. And, and in McKinsey, I learned a lot about making sense of business, which I had started to learn in the MBA, but in McKinsey, you take it to the next level about how to build relations, with, with people, with your clients, with your colleagues, building solid relations based on trust, based on, uh, McKinsey always tries to help, to help first. McKinsey always starts helping other, other people in their clients and uh, to build those relations. And, uh, and, and most importantly, how to communicate to senior people, how to communicate in business, an idea, a problem, a solution, how to communicate, that was something that uh, was very, very important, right? And I did that, well, I mean, I did that in multiple countries because I have always, I mean, I think the country where I have stayed longest is uh, Malaysia, where I have been, well, apart from Spain, of course, uh, is Malaysia where I was for uh, seven years, I believe. Uh, But apart from that, well, I have spent, well, I'm here in Thailand, for, i think here for uh, well, not, not even one year. Uh, so I always like, uh, uh, for example, in Malaysia, you are Malaysian, I always like, well, you know, getting to know people. Malaysia is a very diverse country where there is people from, well, there is Chinese people, Indian people, Malay people, and uh, all of them are different, right? And uh, all of them have their own uh, particularities. It's, it's a lot of fun to live in Malaysia because every day you learn something new. Uh, and that that is that is what I enjoy. Right. I wouldn't enjoy personally living in my own country where I where everything is culturally normal for me. I like living in places where things are, you know, different.
0: No. Very, very like I, I love that you said that in a sense, and not just because I'm terribly biased towards Malaysia, but I also love that you you bring out kind of like the love for the diversity of learning, for, for continuously meeting new people, and all of that. Tell us a bit about how, um, kind of like as you started getting into the role at McKinsey and all of that, and you started bringing forward uh the things that you were learning about in the MBA into the real workplace, in a sense, and seeing that in reflected in clients and all of that. Data is something that often they say never lies, it, it seems to be very. Uh, One size fit all at all at many times and then here on the other side there's there's the aspect of communicating the data to different audiences and all that. Did you have any um, experiences in a sense of communicating that data in different ways depending on your audience, depending on the people that you're meeting, whether that's culturally different people or whether that's people who just are in different positions in the company, or or how was your experience kind of like learning to communicate that data out to different groups of people in a sense? To paraphrase.
1: Well, I mean. Absolutely. I mean, when I started working in McKinsey in data oriented projects, uh, that was in South America. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me that was in South America, that was the early 2010s. And I uh, just came out of university out of Chicago and I, and I knew well, a lot of different ways of putting numbers together. Uh, but clients uh, didn't understand those ways. You were actually by using that terminology, you were actually getting them lost. Yeah, uh, getting them lost. They didn't understand a single word of what you were saying, which by the way is quite important as a as a data professional, or yeah, particularly for young people, young people, uh, young boys and girls that just finish engineering and find it really they are really smart, they can program anything, but they find it really difficult for them to communicate. It's really difficult and very difficult for, for more, maybe more senior people to understand what they say. Right. So having this ability to uh, communicate at the same time with a data team and with uh, with 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 a business team is very, very important. And uh, in, in, in in McKinsey and also in, in in other companies, we call these people data translators. And because they translate. Because they are actually they have all these recommendations that are made based on data, et cetera, et cetera. And they are able to translate that thing into a language that makes sense for business people, <laughs> a language that makes sense for the people that have to implement those
0: recommendations. From right. the language of numbers to the language of words.
1: To the language of people, right? So they, we call them data translators. And this is very, very important. It's, it's very important. And most successful uh, young engineers that I have known are are uh, data translators are people that can talk to both sides of the table, right? That is very important. So I, I had to learn that the, the hard way. Uh, clients at that time, I mean, analytics data was not uh, a buzzword at that time. Uh, and sometimes, you, even if you made a very complicated analysis, uh, you had to present it with simple overages and simple. I mean, uh, at the end of the day, at that time, a business person, uh Typically understood that there were different segments with different overages of certain parameters, but much more than that, <laughs> it was it was it was difficult. But but it's, it's something that you also realize when you are uh, working in, in 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 maybe marketing. Well, in data analytics, but applied to marketing, applied to finance, applied to operations, applied applied to different parts of a business, is that sometimes. If you overcomplicate the solution, that solution is not going to be implemented well oftentimes it's about making something that is simple that can be implemented well um, if you are making a recommendation about marketing uh, there will have to be marketing there will have to be campaign managers that will have to take that to reality if you are making a recommendation about sales there is going to be sales people that have to take it to reality and the more complicated you make it the more difficult it's going to be for them to implement it so oftentimes particularly in emerging markets. Uh, because most of my experiences in emerging markets, oftentimes simplicity pays off rather than sophistication. Uh, this is something that sometimes I try to explain because sophistication is sexy, right? And simplicity is not. Uh, <laughs> but, well, uh, those are... But, but these kind of things are important. And being able, uh, as a data professional, being able to explain this uh, is, is very important because otherwise you are not going to have... The results that you require, right? Um, there is one funny statistic. is a, is a statistic by Gartner. Uh, so Gartner did an analysis and found out that eighty five percent of all data driven projects fail. Oh, wow, that is very surprising. Which
0: makes,
1: of, which makes a lot of sense. I mean, it resonates very much with me. It makes a lot of sense. Um, so uh, being able to communicate well. To define it in, certain, in in simple terms that can be implemented uh going gradually all these kinds of things are very very important right
0: yeah yep, i
1: mean, yep. to the people as aspects of the people that have to implement it right if you are doing something for a uh, sales people it cannot be as complicated as rocket science because sales people are not going to be able to uh, i mean they have they have their job to do right um, so yeah these are some of the some of the things that I learned um, over time about how to how to drive these these kind of projects, right?
0: Yep. yep. And in your career, you seem to 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 very quickly move like uh, higher and higher in your career. You you when you were here in Malaysia, I know that you were the I think also a, a group vice president for for data analytics at one point. So very very fast career progression. What do you think in your experience has helped you? Uh, be able to communicate the data be able to communicate the science well so that you could progress in your career what has been the helpful elements in that has it been keeping it simple if so how do you really uh do that in a way because you have so many different stakeholders how do you know what is the right thing to communicate to who I, I i
1: i wouldn't i i wouldn't know i mean i think uh, if you the the factor that accounts for most of the relative success that I might have had is probably having been in the right place at the right time, which was absolutely (laughs) random, no? Uh
0: (laughs) I doubt it, but okay.
1: All right. Uh, So having somebody, being somebody that had this combination of data and business uh, at a moment in which uh, industries were demanding for that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Yeah. I mean, I think uh, I I think that, that is very that is very important. Sometimes most many times there are many things that, that we cannot control, either positive or negative. And, and this was one of the things that I think uh, helped me. Um, without me knowing that, right? Without me knowing that. Um, in Axiata, now that you mentioned it was very interesting because Axiata is, well, Axiata, for those that don't know, that is a telecom conglomerate based in Malaysia. Um, is a, is a company that is based in many countries uh, i is, is in indonesia uh, cambodia sri lanka bangladesh nepal and malaysia six countries right it, it was it was amazing because there were people from at least six countries if not more uh, i was in charge of restructuring all the data teams across the whole all, all, all that uh, ecosystem of companies uh, and it was it was amazing and And one of the things that i did i mean it was it was a lot of fun i was traveling all the time going to nepal starting the week in nepal finishing the week in jakarta i i I really enjoyed that uh uh going with people meeting people in nepal that take you to to their homes now for example nepalese people are very welcoming they take you to your home to their home and and they show you around Uh, it it was amazing but what we did is basically we had a number of business intelligence teams that we're doing just reporting in in, in all the companies. And what I tried to do was to transform them into in each company into a more or less centralized analytics team that was not only crunching numbers because analytics is not about crunching numbers. It's about making business decisions with those numbers or at least recommendations, right? So that's what we tried to do. It was a business first. It was driven by business. It was not driven by technology. We didn't want to make complicated things just for the purpose of making complicated numbers. We wanted to focus on a few use cases, which were about marketing campaigns, uh, recommendations of products, pricing, uh, etc. We wanted to focus on a few use cases and, and make it very, very business driven. And that is what took us to the Cloudera Award, uh, the Cloudera Award that we were given uh, in Axiata in 2019, I believe it was just before COVID, um, so that was an award that we got, and and uh, very interesting. We we got that uh, that year in 2019. There were a few companies that got that, uh, and the representation of emerging markets was uh, was huge. I mean, there were three other, well, there were two other companies from Southeast Asia.
0: Yeah, I think it's the Cloudera Data Impact uh, Awards, this
1: right? Is the Data Impact Award. We got, uh, we won in the category of uh, industry change, I believe. Industry change on so having industry transformation, I believe it was the name. Having, having transformed an industry by organizing analytics in a different way, in a way that was Uh, Not in a natural way, not putting technology first, but putting business first
0: no, very very interesting in a sense especially it's because on the topic of kind of like industry transformation or kind of like transforming teams in a sense one thing I often hear is when you, when you go in and you transform an existing process or an existing team in a sense there's often a lot of friction to change or a lot of uh, human factors in a sense that maybe slow down the change and make that process a little harder in a sense and I'm sure that that is only um, extrapolated when you deal with people from different countries in a, in a in a, in, a, uh, in a similar uh, kind of team or larger setting, in a sense. For you, were there any kind of like human challenges or, or challenges in getting people to be receptive to that change of things and all that? Like, how do you go about managing it, in a sense?
1: In every company, there are tensions among different departments. They are not necessarily bad. They are not necessarily <laughs> it could even be bad.
0: That's a good point. For example,
1: well, you know, I am now running a corporate venture that is doing data monetization here in Thailand, and 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 in every company there are uh, there are these kind of frictions. Uh, typical frictions that happen very often is between product and sales. Yeah? The people that have to develop a product, and the people that want to sell it. You are developing something that I cannot sell. You just don't know how to sell it. That's a typical one. There are <laughs> there are frictions typically as well between uh, data scientists and the business consultants or the data translators that are the ones that are making the interface between the business and the technical teams, uh, there is typically that kind of, of friction as well, between the technical teams and the business teams, right? There is that kind of friction. And I, I would say that friction, if it is kept to a reasonable level is positive because that friction and that difference of opinions, I mean, we're talking about diversity, right? That is precisely diversity. Mm-hmm that difference of opinions is what is pushing everybody upwards right so the fact that sales is telling product i cannot say there is no way to sell this thing well i mean if product wants to listen and they should they should take this feedback and make it better uh the same thing uh, the other way around right so these kind of frictions always happen um, i think the secret is about uh, listening to both parties and being being uh, rather, I mean, rather than position yourself as a judge that has to say, well, in this situation you are right, in this situation you is right, is more about coordinating them and uh, allowing them to make their own decisions, right? I, 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 one of the things that I have uh, realized uh, over time, and I, I have managed different people from, from, from many cultures, and I think this is really cross-cultural, or or relatively cross-cultural one of the things that people enjoy most is being autonomous is being able to make their own decisions Uh, is feeling trusted in a way that they can uh, run the steps in their own projects probably what you are doing as a manager you are defining what is the the highway they have to follow what is the direction you are also asking them to keep you informed. But when it comes to making the tactical decisions, you let them do it, right? Uh, and I, I have realized that people typically like that. So people that have, sometimes people that have worked with me and they left, they went to another places and, and they ask, what, what do you enjoy about working with me? Typically they say this thing. I, I don't like uh, micromanaging. Uh, I only do it if there is no other way. Uh, I, I don't, I don't think anybody does. Uh, uh, and I don't like micromanaging because, number one, people don't like it. People are more effective <laughs> the other way around. And uh, and the other thing is because I also have more time if I don't do it because I can dedicate my time to other things. So that was something that is, I would say, relatively cross-culture. Uh, so empowering them and and saying, hey, I understand that sometimes you're going to, have these frictions? I understand that. Uh, talk to each other as long as it doesn't get out of control. I am fine.
0: All right. Very, very interesting. And I think it also goes back to kind of like that intersection that you're very good at at balancing the data part of it, which is the industry you're in, and also the people part of it. I think you also gave a TED talk, yeah, TEDx talk, if I'm not mistaken, on a similar. Same topic day as
1: you. Yeah. Uh- <laughs>
0: If I, I recall. Oh, yes,
1: you I in, in Kuala Lumpur International Medical University, correct.
0: Yes, that's actually how we got in touch. Yes, I recall. Um, but your TED talk was very, uh, your TEDx talk was very interesting. I think it was on how AI makes the workplace more human instead of more automated. If I yeah. recall correctly, in a sense, and I that was a very.
1: Yeah, correct. I was. I have always been very interested in the interaction of technology and and people. How technology. Uh, Changes people's life, and one of the things that we typically hear is that uh, artificial intelligence is going to make the workplace more uh, less human. Because, well, I mean, you like it or not, uh, sooner or later we are going to have robots that are going to be, and, and we already have them, right? There is robotic process automation in in many firms, in many back office uh, activities like finance, uh, accounting, etc. Uh, there are robots in manufacturing, it's very robotized, so we, we already have that, right? And, and, and the tech talk was basically, well, I mean, the fact that robots are taking over some roles that are easier to automate, that base, those roles that are easier to automate are, are the roles that human beings are not required for, are the roles that are more uh, process-oriented, are the, the jobs that require... The, that require human activities that are not uniquely human. the jobs that require activities that are uniquely human cannot be automated because because those those things are uh, robots cannot do right So for example things such as creativity, uh, team management, motivation, uh, these kind of things cannot be automated right So what we are seeing is that um, roles, Uh, that are being automated are pushing people up the the staircase, up the ladder into into jobs that cannot be automated, right? That has always happened. It happened in agriculture. A lot of people were working in the fields, and then there started to be automation in agriculture, and those people had to go to do other jobs. And this is the same thing that is happening, right? So we see uh, some jobs that are more uh, process-oriented, manual jobs that people uh, are... are are gonna start not to do anymore. And they are gonna be focused on all these other jobs that are uniquely human. So that's why my, my tech talk was about highlighting the fact that artificial intelligence is making us more human, not less.
0: Yeah, yep. and building on that in a sense, um, listening to that was very it was very interesting, and I love that point that you made. And one of the questions that I did have is, as these people start getting, as you said, pushed up the staircase, as they're starting to to take on more human roles, in a sense, using their creativity, using their innovation, that is also sometimes a, sub, a kind of like a set of skills that needs to be fostered um, to, to make sure that they are competitive in these times where the, the normal jobs and the kind of the regular process-oriented jobs, as you said, um, can be done by softwares and can be done by automation in a sense and AI. So, how do you, as a leader, kind of like encourage those those more human skills of creativity, of innovation, of being able to, of, of collaboration between people in your team, in a sense?
1: So, uh, I mean, we did in in the companies where I have been, particularly the last two, we did a lot of work in terms of talent development. Uh, because coming back to the idea of artificial intelligence becoming more human. Mm-hmm. Uh, the artificial intelligence is automating activities at a very fast rate. In the old days, you went to university, you studied something, you could do that thing for your whole life. Now, you probably have to change your job years. right? Yeah,
0: that's true. You
1: start, depending when you start, uh, you are going to start on something There is a high chance that that thing is, might be automated, might change, might be disrupted. You have to move into something else. So you have to always be learning, right? Uh, and uh, well, in 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 Axieta we created a very large training program that was focused on online learning. We trained around 600 people in in analytics only uh, across all the these six uh, countries that I mentioned. Um, and I think it's always good to have a, a, a training budget where anybody can request a a, a training, and then uh, and then we well we just. Um, we, we we just give them those trainings as long as they they are in the in the right areas, right? So I think that is uh, that is quite important. Um, I, people, particularly, I, I typically work with young people, right? Because an analytics is typically young people. Um, young people are very uh, well; they are used to learning, right? And uh, and they they enjoy it. And this is the kind of people that I that I like hiring, right? One of the questions that I always ask in my in my interviews is what have you studied this year? What what have you actively taught yourself this year? Um, because I want people that that are teaching themselves something, not learning something on the job, just because I was there and I happened to have a project about this, I ended up learning. No, did you study something? Did you take a course? Did you do it actively? Mm.
0: No, 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 that's a very good point in a sense. And as you see, kind of like, like as you said, in the last few years, especially, a lot of hype or a lot of like a, like a innovation in the AI and kind of like the data industry has been happening. Um, I would say even five years ago, probably people are not as focused in this industry as they are now. A lot of people are now going and studying it. A lot of people are now looking at it from a corporate point of view, from a college student point of view of things that are going to continue to grow in the future. Where do you see this industry headed, in a sense? And and how can people right now going to university making decisions to get into this industry? What do you think are the most important skills that they actually need to know, outside of just the the actual practical, the, like like theoretical parts of it? What makes someone stand out in this industry?
1: I mean, so many questions. Uh, let me start. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> one by uh, uh, So. As I said before, I'm running a, a venture that is called True Analytics, uh, um, which where we do is uh, monetization of data. Uh, basically, three products: we do advertising, credit scoring, and we do uh, customer research. But I'm, I'm going to tell you for the young people that we are hiring, what what we are looking for in terms of hard skills, right? Hard skills that we are looking for is uh, not necessarily that they know a lot of. I mean, it, they they don't need to know i mean elite, there are so many developments so that are happening every year that for me as i say before the, the first uh, requirement is that they are ready to learn okay that they are ready to learn second requirement is that they have the basics the basics and the basics is they need to know programming they need to know statistics right and they need to know communication, they have to be good at communication. and communication is one of the things that changes very wildly across cultures. Uh, but they have I mean they have as I was saying before, they have to be able to communicate with business people, they have to do it well right this is I think having these things is what is really uh, gonna make uh, the difference for somebody young that starts that is interested in analytics right in an, well I mean now there is a convergence between analytics. The metaverse, uh, yeah. blockchain, right, is 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 gonna come together. One of the things that, for example, I'm looking at and I feel quite interested in is how we can advertise in the metaverse. How we can use AI and analytics to advertise in the metaverse is something that I'm looking at. So all these things are are, are getting combined and and good people that are gonna make best of the new technology innovations, etc. Is people who can learn fast. Right. and and this topic about communication. I mean, this is a this is a, a very big uh, this is a very big thing. One of
0: it's the hardest things
1: to learn, yeah, It's the hardest thing to learn. I mean, particularly having lived in in in, in many countries, no. Um, there are there are countries that have a very indirect communication, or there are people that are very indirect when they are communicating. Uh, and there are people that are much more direct. Um, there are countries or people where there is a, a very, uh, I would say, very strong people. There is, there is a very large distance from to power. It means when somebody is in power, he knows that. And when somebody is not in power, he knows that and he... Positions himself very far away from the other person, showing respect. In some cultures, that distance is huge. In other cultures, that distance is very small. In the U.S., is very small, very flat. In in some Asian cultures, it, it can be it can be big. It can be big, right? It, and 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 overcoming all these cultural differences is 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 very tough. It's very tough. It, Sometimes, as a manager or for example, now I'm leading a a business unit or before I was leading a a, a department. sometimes, as a manager, the most difficult thing to know is what your team is thinking
0: mm-hmm. and how and how your
1: do you it's not necessarily in every country. There are countries where we're talking about the U.S. U.S. is very direct communicating. It's a very individualistic society, uh, but in other environments, is is very difficult to to really know what is what is happening out there.
0: And how do you, as as, as I said, someone who's seen a lot of these different cultures, in a sense, is there any common thread that that? that or golden rules that you would say that help you kind of adapt to these different cultures and all of the unspoken rules, or if not, how do you get the cultures which maybe do not speak up as well as much or, or do not really engage as much uh, directly with, with their bosses and all that to to start really taking the lead and hearing their ideas out? So two questions. Yeah, yeah. I, think,
1: I think the reality is that you have to adapt. Mm. Uh, not, not they—they are, they are not going to adapt to you. So people in your team are not going to adapt to you. You are going to adapt. Uh, uh, so what I would say—I mean, I have been in situations, early in my career, this was in China, in which there was a a team of people. Uh, they didn't necessarily speak very good English, um, and I really didn't know what they were thinking about different topics, right? Topics that were not necessarily very conflictual, topics that were very, very plain vanilla, right? I mean, in this project, whether we do this or that, right? Things very plain vanilla. And, 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 and one time, I remember, I really didn't know what they wanted to do. And, and I, I was talking to a colleague of mine that had been in China for a long time, and he told me, well, I'll give you a trick that I use. Uh, so I used it. And the trick was basically... Well, I mean, you you ask them to go to a meeting, they, they come to the meeting room, and then you ask, uh, you, you ask the question, what do we do about this? Or what do you think about that? Or uh, should we have these three options? A, B, C? Will you take A? Will you take B? Will you take C? Well, sometimes in this kind of, there are situations which nobody says anything. Now, in the... In, in, in video conferences even more, right? Um, so what what I did at that time and that was the advice is, well, I mean, you you make the question uh, and then at that moment, you pretend that <laughs> you pretend that something has happened that requires you out of the room. Somebody is calling you, you get a telephone call, etc. And then you say you get out of the room and then you say, uh, well i am coming back in 10 minutes but in the meantime could you please help me answering this question that we have here and then you appoint one of them it doesn't matter really who typically uh, in a in typically it could be it could be the oldest it could be the most senior you appoint one of them and then you say well can you discuss with them and then you when when i come back maybe you tell me you summarize uh, that in the in the whiteboard you you write uh, and then you tell me what what the, what the recommendation is. And that kind of works, right? Then when I, when you come back, it's done, right? And because the person that has to give the summary is very clear that he's not giving his opinion, he's giving the opinion of the others, uh, it, be, it becomes very easy for them to, to do that, right? I, I mean, it's not only cultural differences. Sometimes uh, at that time when I was in China in 2000. Uh, seven eight nine uh, not not everybody spoke english well right um, yeah. so that was one of the things that i have realized other things that i have realized is that sometimes when i am in meetings uh, i look at i look at people uh, i look at, at, at faces and, and i realize that a lot of people are not watching the the screen, the, 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 the slide, the PowerPoint. A lot of people are not watching the PowerPoint. A lot of people are watching the face of the boss.
0: <laughs> OK, it's a different skill, in a sense. It's a more interpersonal than, than, than looking at the, the, the data or but, the actual mission topic, in a sense. For-
1: which is fine, because by watching the face, you are understanding what, what he thinks. Uh, um, is, is something that you wouldn't necessarily see in a Western, in a Western company, right? Um, but, well, I mean, these are these, are these kind of things where uh, uh, that, well, that are, that are fun. At the end of the day, they are fun. There is another one that I really love, which is rumors, rumors, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as a manager, sometimes you always have some, you always need to find somebody who tells you the rumors, those rumors that are circulating in the company that if, if there is not somebody who you have asked when, tell me about these things. You might never know, hmm. this person is, this person is angry because this thing happened. Maybe something I did, or maybe something that somebody, but we just don't know, right? So uh, sometimes uh, having somebody in the team that is gonna tell you those rumors, those things that are circulating around informally, but that those things that will never come in a formal way to you, that is very, very important. So being able to, to find somebody like that is, is important. It's typically, uh, it could be a junior person. It could be, it's typically a junior person, right? The, the kind of person that is going to tell you this is a junior person. <laughs> well, but that
0: I mean, is very serious. Right. Yeah, sorry, go is, ahead. No, but that, that is very because like important. you don't think that rumors are so important until you, you put it in that context and then you're right in a sense it is important to pick up in a sense how do you go there about- are a lot
1: of, like- a lot of ceos uh, ceos that i have met that don't get don't have all the information that there are people are not giving all the information because they are afraid, because they are different incentives, because they are different things, right? And sometimes the CEO or, 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 or the leader is lacking information, sometimes very important information. So being able as a leader, particularly in certain cultures, to get that information informally from different sources, not from the main channel, being able to to, to to sync with another radio station that is like a, a pirate radio station that is means something, it's very important because otherwise you would never know it.
0: And how do you go about number one or basically like forming those connections with people in your team? Because you have to find someone who, number one, trusts you, is, is able to tell the truth in a sense. Is that something do you look at in the hiring process or sometimes you come into an organization and there's already existing people there? Who do you essentially... Like, like, work with in a sense. Well, what do you look for, right? I mean, there is obviously, I mean, we are all human beings,
1: right? There are always Mm -hmm. uh, people that work together better than other people, right? Uh, It it just happens, it just happens. Uh, There are people that are more alike independently of uh, cultures, etc. Right? I remember in McKinsey, I did a project with uh, uh, people from the Middle East. and uh, and, I, and i had a lot of fun with them because despite all these cultural differences uh, that we had in terms of language religion etc etc we were uh, very much alike i mean spain i'm from spain and spain was 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 muslim for 800 years right and there are a lot of cultural uh, things in the in, in in deep in your culture that that make you connect with somebody that well somebody that was similar to people that were living in Spain uh, five hundred years ago and and I don't know so I was working with in a project which was about uh doing m a uh, and and I was working with people from the middle east and it was and and I had an amazing connection with them um and uh, and it was it was a fun project it was absolutely fun because of the people that we work with
0: okay very very well said and i think as we wind down this conversation i'm very curious that in all of these experiences what do you think is one or two or, or I would say truths that people need to know when they go into a different culture, or, or something that would help them adapt. That many people often don't think about, or that you've seen people sort of not get in their experience of kind of trying to adapt to another culture.
1: Don't have any assumption. Hmm. Don't have an assumption about things. This thing, this is this is right. This is wrong. I mean, maybe it's right for you. Maybe it's wrong for somebody else. Um, just don't don't have any any assumption at all. Just go with the flow. Just go with the flow. Play by the ear, and what you see, you do, and uh, just just that. It's a little bit like when you learn a language, no? What you hear, you repeat. Um, so I mean, and that is that is what I would say. I mean, even if an, a, a behavior mm-hmm. or an idea in one place is good. That doesn't mean that in another place it's going to be bad or it's not going to be bad, right? And the other way around, right? We are used to a lot of things in Western societies that other countries uh, find it surprising. Uh, And in the same way in uh, in Asia, uh, I've been in Asia most of my life, right? In Asia, we do things that in other countries they don't do, right? Um, But, I mean, I'm I'm saying all these things as if I am an expert in this. I'm not. I'm making mistakes all the time, and I'm making big mistakes all the time, right? Uh, probably, as you are getting older, uh, that becomes becomes you 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 start developing bad habits as well, right? But I think my 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 recommendation will be go with the flow. Don't don't have any assumption. Just uh, just go with the flow. If you do something that somebody at some point doesn't like, just apologize and, and go
0: on. Okay. Very, very good advice. And I like the thing that you say, it's like learning a language. When you hear, you repeat, when You you kind of like, like nobody like, at least I feel like you, you really have to immerse yourself in the environment and, and, and see first and then, uh, and then go with that. So very, very good analogy. And thank you so much for all of your stories and all that. Uh, I'm so surprised we're actually at the end of our session, because I, I've been just, amazed by all of the stories that you shared and I think that if anyone needs to learn how to adapt to a culture, work as a team across borders, you are the one of the pros that we should speak to because you just have so many experiences and tricks that we can use in a sense so thank you so much for taking your time to actually thank spend you. with us. It's personally been very helpful with me as I start navigating all of these things and I hope it's been as uh, fruitful for our audience as I enjoyed this conversation like, so much in a way. and thank you. For
1: thank you, so you Harsan great to talk to you. has been Amazing and uh, and thank you so much for the opportunity. Absolutely great. Thank you very very much. Thank you. I'm doing this thing now because what what I hear I do what I do uh, I do because I've been living in Thailand for one year. So I I say thank you in the in the Thai way, which absolutely I mean becomes very natural now to me to to do this. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it's I, I think this ability to adapt, even if you, you, you do little steps, like for example, you go to a new country and you just learn a few words, just out of politeness. Uh, all these things are very, very important.
0: All right, very cool. So to end this session, can you teach us how to say thank you in another language so we can thank our audience in a different language for today's session? Language but of I'm your gonna, I'm, gonna
1: Spanish. I'm gonna choose Spanish, which is my mother tongue. So uh, thank you in Spanish is gracias
0: gracias, gracias. alright gracias. Gracias. Okay. Gracias. gracias 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 okay alright thank you gracias to our audience and our amazing speaker if you had fun as much as I did make sure you like and comment in the chat and thank you once again and this is Harsha signing off see you guys again you. next week bye bye you're listening to changing reality changing reality where we bend reality all across the world on WQHS Radio.